0: The Republican whole theory of the case is let the market sort it out. And I think it's really easy for the Biden administration to say, we've tried that before. And when you don't pick winners and losers, the American people are the losers. And that's what happened under Trump. And that is what's going to happen again, is you'll lose under him and you will win under me. And we are winning under this administration. So give us more time in order to help us win some more.
1: My guest today, Pete Brodnitz, runs a political polling company called Expedition Strategies that works in both the United States and abroad. They have clients ranging from senators like Tim Kaine, Jeff Merkley, and Chris Coons to quite a number of presidents of other countries. Pete was previously a partner in other notable polling groups, but has been out on his own for the past bunch of cycles. I really enjoyed hearing his story, how he built his firm, and how he thinks about public opinion and campaigning in the age of Trump. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Pete Brodnitz of Expedition Strategies.
0: Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount.
1: Pete. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. My name is Pete Brodnitz, and I run a polling firm called Expedition Strategies. We're inside the proverbial beltway, or at least I am, because I'm working out of Arlington. But we also have someone in Ohio, and we have someone in Minnesota. We were virtual before COVID hit, fortunately, and we didn't have to change the way we operate. We already had our files in the cloud and so forth. So we don't have one central office with a lot of people. We also don't have a lot of people. We're a small firm. We started in 2016. It was myself and a colleague of mine from my prior firm, Jack Roos. And we started this in May of 2016 as a political consulting shop primarily. And to the extent we're not doing things that are overtly political and candidate specific, it's usually public policy oriented. In other words, some shops diversify. They get a lot into commercial work. The commercial work is very lucrative. I enjoy some aspects of commercial work. We do some of it, but that's never really been our focus. We're a strategy shop, so a strategic polling firm. So how did I get here? Grew up in New Jersey in the suburbs, central New Jersey. Family, not involved in politics, although my father ran for local council, served one term. And then we moved to the Netherlands. And this was just because the job that he had had an office in the Netherlands and he had an opportunity to move the family there. So we did that for five years. So I grew up in New Jersey except for a five year period where I didn't.
1: How old were you during that five year period?
0: That was 10 through 15. Yeah. Pretty formative. Yeah. So it was fifth through ninth grades. It was excellent. Excellent. They went to the American school of the Hague, really great school, great education out of, I went to public schools except for that, those five years, those five years though, they were just better. I learned a lot uh, in the five years. And also, you know, you don't appreciate these things till later, but the experience of living in Europe made a big difference too. You know, you could literally walk to the end of the street, grab a bus and get to anywhere in Europe from just the end of the street, because the public transportation is so easy to use. And also just because it's all so connected. Plus, when you're there, you get a very different perspective on things. My father's parents fled Germany. When the going got bad in 1933, and 1934, my mother's parents fled Ukraine because of the pogroms, so they came to New Jersey. My father grew up in Israel, so that's a backdrop. But when you're living in Europe, you're also seeing the vestiges of World War II all the time. So didn't didn't really appreciate it at the time, but seeing all the battlefields, because you know when you're living in the U.S., we're in a unique position of being in a country that's other than 1812, we've never been invaded. And, you know, Pearl, the Pearl Harbor attack, which also wasn't mainland. But so as a country, I think we have a very different mindset when it comes to war than the countries have that have actually been in the middle of a land war. So there's five years of being around it. You know, there are a lot of churches, a lot of museums, but also a lot of battlefields. So anyway, so that was five years in the Netherlands, came back to New Jersey and finished out high school in New Jersey. The only thing notable about that was when we first came back, I joined what was called Speech and Debate. Which is funny because I wasn't a good student particularly, but I guess I liked arguing. And so a friend introduced me to it and you know, it was the opportunity to go argue with people. So I enjoyed that part of it. I did it for a couple of years, did the Georgetown Forensics Institute, which is their debate uh, program. And I only mention it because I'm always struck at how valuable that was even today because I'm a pollster, so we provide numbers, but really we're a strategic communications firm. You know, ultimately, we're trying to advise people on what to say out of all the various things that you believe and out of all the various things in your background, how do you distill it into a cogent campaign that gives people a compelling reason to support you and a compelling differentiation between you and your opponent? So it's not just polling. I really enjoy the debate preparation piece of it. And so having a, a couple of years, pretty intensive background in that, I, I still draw on that all the time. Anyway, so that was that. So I went to college, Clark University in Worcester, Mass. Originally to be a psych major, after getting involved in it a little bit, I realized I don't understand psychoanalysis and I never will. And so I decided that was not the thing for me. I really liked a couple of courses I took in experimental psychology where you set up an experiment and you studied a behavior and tried to understand it. That was great, but I didn't really see a future in it just because from my understanding was the job opportunities that were in that field weren't really interesting to me. So that was that, but toward the tail end of that, a woman named Helen Caldecott gave a speech at the school and she was a physician from Australia who was a leader in the anti-nuclear movement. This is Reagan years, so it's Cold War active rhetorical battles between the US and Russia and a nuclear buildup. And so she gave a what I thought was a really scary speech about the prospects for accidental nuclear war. And that got me very interested in that issue. I just felt like I should do something about that issue. And at that point, I had also become what they call a government major. Most places probably would call it poli-sci. I had some interest in that area, but that issue kind of grabbed me. I also did a semester at the American University DC semester, which was a complete immersion for one semester with guest lecturers all the time. The professor who ran it was Ken Gold. And that was fantastic. Loved every minute of that because it was just guest lecturers from people who were actively involved in doing things in public policy all the time. So that completely hooked me. So after I got out of undergrad, I had a government major, I had no job opportunities. The economy was anemic at that point. Literally, the only job opportunities I was being shown by the school were jobs at insurance companies doing I don't know what, but it wasn't for me. And so some friends asked me to go on a long bike ride around Europe with no fixed endpoint. And since I had no prospects, I thought that sounded like a good idea. So we did that until it kind of ran its course. And then my brother was at the C and said, you know, they have internships here. So if you don't really know what you're gonna do, what about an internship? I was an intern in the research shop at the DCCC, uh, which was a lot of fun. I got great advice from the woman who ran the program, Rochelle Dornay, which I still use today, which was she would say repeatedly, take copious notes. (laughs) Right, so she wouldn't have to repeat herself. You can actually see behind me, there's a whole shelf of notebooks. I took the advice seriously. I still do it because that way, if someone tells me something, I don't have to ask a second time. What was it that I was supposed to do or how was I supposed to do it? So anyway, that was really good advice. But the most important thing probably that came out of that was that I was introduced to political consulting, which I'd never heard of before. At the committee, they're dealing with a lot of consultants. And so I just got exposed to it. And the research department is helping the consultants. So as a part of that, a a bunch of consultants were extremely nice And agreed to do informational interviews with me to explain how it all works, which is kind of what I'm trying to do as part of my description here is to pass that some of that along. But I'll do that. I like doing that with people. I like doing the same because it was a big help for me to understand what is this? part of the political process? How does that really work? What are the roles? How might you get involved? And so I wasn't just meeting with pollsters. I actually met with several media people. I met with some pollsters too. Anyway, that was really useful. But there was no way for me to get in at the moment. No one was offering me a job. So I realized I was probably going to have to start at very entry level. And again, I had no skills at this point, nothing. I had an undergraduate degree from a good school, but I really had no skills that anyone wanted to buy in the marketplace. So I decided, well, if I'm gonna do something that's really entry-level and fairly thankless and earn my stripes, I might as well do it where I have a lot of friends and also my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife. And so I moved back to Boston. I worked at a Kinko's, took a little while, but after about six months, I got an entry-level job at Council for the World because I was looking specifically for something related to the nuclear work. And in fact, I had done an internship in college related to the nuclear work with another group. And I wasn't going to go for consulting. I was going to go for an issue as an activist. So I focused on that. But having no skills, the only job I could get, which ended up working out fine, but I was in charge of the mail operation, which meant I carried the bags of mail to the post office, (laughs) which was appropriate for my skill level at the time, just running the bulk mail operation. That's their fundraising, right? Yeah, they were actually sending out newsletters. Like I specifically remember the conversation in the office at one point when they said, the DC office got a fax machine. Should we get a fax machine? And I said, well, why do we need a fax machine? We can just mail something. It was a different time. Uh, so it was physically hauling these paper newsletters and the solicitations, but you had to walk it all to the post office. But as part of it, someone said at one point, why don't we organize all the public polls that we can find into an argument and see whether they make a compelling case in support of arms control. So I said, okay, I'll volunteer for that. So I ended up doing several of those. And that got me thinking specifically about the polling piece. But it also meant that when I eventually moved back to DC, having a little bit of experience under my belt. And, you know, I always say to people when they're looking for work with me, one of the most important things is to be really passionate about the work because the hours are not normal hours. You're on all the time. If I'm not on literally all the time, I'm on mentally all the time. You're always chewing on whatever the issue is that you're trying to figure out. That's what the process is, I think, uh, to do it well. You have to really give it a lot of your time, a lot of your mental space. Anyway, so I had these newsletters that showed I had some interest, and that was enough to get me an entry-level job at a firm called – well, then it was called Pen & Shown. Rob Green, who ran the D.C. office, hired me. And it was really it was just Rob and myself working out of his townhouse in the beginning.
1: That was a dominant polling shop at the time, or it
0: became one. They had done a lot of races. They had done international work, and they had done a good amount of domestic work. But they weren't the highest profile firm. When I came on, it was still a little bit sleepy. I remember specifically, we were, my job was trying to figure out where there might be a campaign that might want to hire us. And this was, again, before you had easily access to information on the internet. So it was calling around the country. Hey, I hear that there might be something in CD3. Who do you think might be running? Calling people. So it was a lot of grunt work. Again, not everyone wants to do that work. In the end, it turns out it was probably valuable work because I do run a business. And it's not a business if you don't have clients. So it actually ended up being a useful skill working that deeply in the coal mine. But this was before they got hired by Bill Clinton. That actually happened after I'd been there for about a year. Tell me a little bit about them, because they
1: uh, have come to represent a certain point of view that's pretty controversial over time in the Democratic Party, more on the middle than on the left, I would say, or or even to the right sometimes. And, and, And
0: like, what were they like? How were you being shaped by that? I learned some positive lessons and I learned negative lessons. When I left that firm, I was very happy to leave that firm and i'd been with that for about 10 years and didn't even leave on good terms because certain people at the firm reacted badly when i left because when i left my clients left with me it was not a nice place to be but it was an interesting place to be and i got a lot of experience you know i started at the bottom and i worked my way up and in fact what ended up happening was i did that i left to go to grad school and then i came back and so when i came back i had more knowledge more experience. In fact, I did a couple of other jobs. I worked on the Hill for a year, worked with a political ad firm for a year. So I came back at a more senior level the second time. So what did I learn? Well, they, at first it ended up, it was funny. Well, the, the firm ended up getting hired by President Clinton after the Democratic performance in the midterms in 94.
1: Yeah. Rough rough yeah. year.
0: Yeah. So he was looking for something different. And one thing that I think that they did do well was that they were willing to be contrarians. It makes sense in the marketplace to not be the same as everybody else. But I think I did learn a lesson there too, which is there's a there's definitely a impulse to try and be part of the herd. Fit in, don't ruffle feathers, say the thing that's like everybody else. But that's not my job. I get jealous of the media consultants because they get to go out and they get to do the shoot and they get to make your family look beautiful and tell you how adorable your kids are. I'm the one who gets to do the research and say, you know, people don't like you as much as you thought they did. Or all those amazing things that you did, people don't really know what those are. And we have to actually tell people about what those things are. Mm -hmm. So the role of the pollster, one of the primary functions is, it's speak truth to power to the candidate, but basically to be candid to the point where it might not be a lot of fun to hear. I think they were good at that. They were were pretty realistic about the world, which I thought was useful because the thing is I started as an activist But to be a pollster, you have to leave that behind. I have strong feelings about things. There's a a reason why they do this for a living and why I don't do other kinds of research. I, I do care deeply about this. But when I'm working for someone, I'm trying to help them win based on their vision and their story and their agenda. I'm not acting as an activist. So I'm not always going to agree with everything that they do. That's not my job. They're not activists at all. So that was kind of a clean break from activism too. I think they did uh, try and push the envelope in trying to find the new interesting thing. Now, as part of that work, to your point about the centrism, I did a lot of work for DLC at the time. As a result of that, I later have done work for Third Way. Not recently, but I've done pretty extensive work for Third Way. I've done work for PPI, which is a spinoff of DLC for years And work for Simon Rosenberg when it was New Democrat Network, which was in the same space. And then even later on when he changed to NDN and moved out of that space a little bit. So I've done a lot of work in that space. And I personally think that's a really important space for the party. I agree. Yeah. So like I work for people all over the spectrum in the party. Mm -hmm. But that space, like you said, you don't get a lot of love working in that space. And yet it's vitally important that we do it. So.
1: I mean, one of the themes that I've tried to uh, articulate over you know, my small amount of talking in these many interviews has been we need the whole coalition from the left to the anti-Trump Republicans in order to protect the country from what's going on in the other party right now. And we can't be at war within this party or within the progressive coalition writ large.
0: It's, it's one of the defining differences between us and them. If you look at the ideology of the Republicans, they're almost uniformly conservative. And if you look at the ideology of Democrats, we are a diverse coalition, not just racially, but also ideologically. And I think we have to respect that.
1: I, I agree. What was next for you after the pen and shown shop?
0: Oh, yeah. So I, yeah, so I did that for a while. I, I did get good experience. I started doing international work uh, when I was there, too, which ended up becoming really important to me. You know, I've always liked doing that kind of work. And once I got into it, I, you know, really got into it. I'm not going to name all the names on the international work because
1: I see in your various biographies, you know, lots of presidents of different countries uh, that you've worked for around the world.
0: I've worked all over the place. I really enjoy the work. You get to do very important work. A lot of places are emerging democracies. Places like Turkey, where I did the 2015 election, I, I think it's really important to help the social Democrats aggressively fight what's going on there. You know, it's just getting worse. It also
1: seems like because of the playbook going on in Turkey, it's completely relevant
0: to sort of thinking about Trump. Oh, absolutely. I'll give you an an example. So when I did the 2015 election, the social Democrats there had traditionally always run on the issue of secularism because modern Turkey was formed as a secular, as a a country that separated the religious space from the non-religious. So issues like whether or not people should be permitted to wear headscarves in public places were big issues that would come up a lot in campaigns. So a lot of the campaigns were running on those issues. So just to back up one second, when when I did some work in the um, UK, I asked the guy who hired me in the UK, this was for Gordon Brown, why would you hire outsiders, you're smart people who have won a lot of good elections. And his answer was, because you get to do more elections than us. And so you just tend to have more experience. I consulted with Bard the other day to try and figure out how much experience do I have. <laughs> and by the way, I don't know if the correct word is, is it, do you call it the Bard entity? Do you call it Mr. or Mrs. Bard? Is it an engine? Is it a program? I don't know. But So I consulted Bard. I got great uh, authority, yes. Yes, the authority barred. So, Bard told me that I've got about 57,000 hours of experience doing this. And, you know, if the rule of thumb is 10,000, and you assume I'm a third as intelligent as the average person, then I still have a pretty good amount of experience doing this stuff. So, what happened in Turkey was I was an outsider. A lot of people would say, well, how can you possibly help us? You're an outsider. Well, you know, I said one of the things a pollster is supposed to do is to speak truth to power. The other thing I think a pollster should do is be willing to ask the questions that make you look dumb. Ask the dumb question, well, why is that? Are you sure that's true? Have you thought about this? Because a lot of times you get really interesting things because what's happening is the people in the ground will always know more than you about the politicians and the nuance and languages and things like that. But still, they're living in the trees. The outside person can know the forest. There's kind of a backwards dynamic that happens often if you go and you talk to a new person. They say, what do you know about me and my community? It's like, actually, what I bring is the forest perspective. I'm never going to know more about you and your community than you do or your local advisors. It's always the ability to bring a fresh perspective is actually much more valuable. So in the case of Turkey, they were always running their campaigns based on this one dynamic. So when I did the research, we saw really clearly that actually – there was a real opportunity to run a campaign based on economic issues because that was the real vulnerability and it let you cut across some religious lines. So what ended up happening in Turkey was that the campaign was only semi on message for various reasons, but the chairman of the party who was the candidate was great at delivering it forcefully in person at rallies. So it got through to that extent and it forced Erdogan into the first runoff that he had had. So as soon as they got into a runoff – Like, I was on a plane on the way in, and so it was within a day or two, and a bomb went off in Ankara at a rally. So people were killed. The government immediately said it was the Kurds. Don't know how they came to that conclusion as fast as they did, because they never identified a perpetrator, as far as I know. And so the Kurds were an important political force, because they're kind of a spoiler. And they had a dynamic political leader, Dermatash, and who was attracting a lot of young voters. And so the government was concerned, I believe politically about the Kurdish vote. So what ended up happening was they started bombing their own Turkish communities where the Kurds lived in pursuit of what they said were the terrorists. So the whole runoff ended up becoming dominated by daily bombing of their own communities. All right. And so it wasn't about the economy anymore. It was about that. So that's in 2015. So when Trump arose, I kept on saying to my clients, look, this is going to sound like crazy talk, but you should be really cautious about this. I like to run scared. There's a big debate in the party about whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic, whatever. I think strategically, it only makes sense to run scared. So I just come off the Turkish thing. This isn't the only international thing I've done, but that was hardball as hard as I've ever seen it. And by the way, some of his rhetoric mirrors rhetoric that Trump picked up. The parallel state language that he uses about how there's a hidden bunch of bureaucrats are out to get me. Erdogan was using that before Trump.
1: Authoritarians or wannabe authoritarians, they listen to each other.
0: Correct. I also think there's actually probably some crossover in actual advisors. So I kept on saying to my clients, this is going to sound like crazy talk, but we should be really afraid. So for instance, I was afraid that after Trump, I was afraid Trump would win, first of all, based on that. For a lot of reasons that we can get into. But then later on, when it came to the midterms, I was also afraid that he was going to start a war. So it ended up he didn't do that. I was wrong about that. But doing the international work, I've also, I think, picked up some lessons that I apply to the domestic work. Maybe it's not always true, but it gives you a different sense of what is possible and what the worst case scenario or the best case scenario might look like. So anyway, so I did the pen and shown thing and then I ended up leaving them. First, I was on my own And I was really just one person with uh, some former colleagues who who were just working with me on a project basis. My clients had left with me and that included the then Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Tim Kaine, who was running for governor. And so, yeah, that was just an unbelievable thing that he did, which was that he stuck with me when I was a one person shop working out of my house. And so I, I was doing that campaign and I had a few heads of state I was working for and some legislative work and congressional work. So it was like a good mix of, of work out of my house, uh, really as a solo operator initially. But what happened was I realized, because I, I left abruptly in the, the Penichon case.
1: Was it a precipitating event?
0: Well, yeah, th- there was. Uh, w- what happened was I had won with President Arroyo in the Philippines She had come back in a big upset. When I came in, she was at 15% in the polls, and she ended up winning handily in the Philippines. We ended up really focusing the message. I got brought in there by by a a couple of guys who were in there before me, Ian McCabe and Chris Dorval, and they brought me in because they were doing governing-related work, but they needed help with uh, the campaign. And she had inherited the office. Her predecessor had been forced out of office. She was vice president. She inherited the office. She was deeply unpopular. And she was seen as very elite. So anyway, we won in an upset. That's a whole story by itself. But after that happened, I was getting very fed up with being at that firm. And we had a final negotiation over what my compensation compensation would be. Yeah, it was about the compensation. And what happened was I got lowballed. Just a little bit, but I got lowballed. And I said, that's it. I'm out of here. So honestly, I try and do the opposite I try and surprise people with a little more on the upside. Yeah.
1: It's a good way to retain people.
0: Correct. Cause that was, I thought that that was, like I said, lessons learned positive and negative. So I left on my own. I did that. What happened was I, because I left precipitously, I didn't know how I was going to get my field work done originally, but then I realized that some colleagues who had left before me had started their own shop. They had a field house and that they were uh, making it available to other people. So I ended up working with them in their field house, ended up eventually joining them is what happened. I had a, actually a lawsuit. So once that lawsuit got cleaned up, then I was free to do whatever I wanted. And then joining these former colleagues. And that uh, was Benenson strategy group.
1: My only knowledge about Benenson was when he got brought into Hillary's campaign after a bunch of early problems. I was working as a CTO People internally seemed relieved that the drama that Penn was might be smoothed (laughs) over a little bit. (laughs) Uh,
0: I I believe that. I'm not a fan of the aforementioned. So I I, I don't know how people reacted. You know, when Joel came in, so he, he was brought in in a central role. And so I ended up having a support role, which was taking some state work. So I wasn't inner circle, I was outer circle on that. So I don't know how the inner circle. I don't really either. Yeah. (laughs) I had my states. Unfortunately, New Hampshire was actually the big focus, which ended up being a rough neighborhood due to the Sanders campaign that year. At the time I joined them, though, that firm was primarily corporate. They only had a little bit of political work. And so I brought in most of the political work that I did was most of the political work the firm had. Kane won in 05, Jim Webb won in an upset in Senate in 06, knocking off an incumbent, George Allen. So those were nice, big back-to-back victories. And then Joel got hired by the Obama campaign. And so he did that and then I did my other things. So that was always really the way it worked, which is we just had parallel things going on. And so I did that until 16 when I split off to form this one. And why'd you do that? It was really mutual. It wasn't a great fit anymore. I know they do political work now, but at that point, they were gravitating much more toward the corporate work. And I've always been, like I mentioned, focused on the political work. The thing is about the political work is it's cyclical,
1: yeah, right? It's, so It's those- hard to run a business around it sometimes.
0: Well, and the thing is they sold to a larger company that had was asking for more reliable revenue streams. And the thing is a bigger company, they discount the value of a cyclical revenue stream. So I don't think my work was that interesting and I didn't want to do different work. This way I get to run, to do political work. Why'd you call it expedition strategies? Ah, so when I had my brief thing after Penn and Schoen, I called it modern strategies. When I was at PSB, I would, I would do a project and then a the client would say to one of the guys whose names was on the firm, Oh, good job on that project. And they didn't even know that project. In other words, I was having a lot of trouble establishing myself when everything I did had their name on it. So when, even when I was a one person shop, I called it modern because I wanted to eventually have a place where people could establish their own reputation and not be burdened by having my name stamped on them like a tattoo.
1: You know, polling firms from what I can see often have a bit of a shaping and reshaping nature, different partners in and out and, changes over time on the masthead how has it been for expedition since you started that
0: First of all it's been it's been very stable it would be nice I suppose to have a, a more a multi-partner kind of firm it's really
1: just it's really you're the main guy
0: yeah, yeah yeah which is not exactly by design but it's worked out that way so far mm-hmm. We're at, which in this industry in the last four years five years or so is becoming unusual. You know, you've talked to at least one who's in a similar kind of position that I'm in, running a smallish shop. But a lot of them have become behemoths, multiple partners. And the thing about that is we're consultants. We're not producing a product. We're producing consultants that are based on individual experience and individual perspective. So if you have multiple partners and they're all sharing the same client list, I'm always really wary about malpracticing somebody by not being able to give them the attention they need. And I just don't know how, when you have a multiple partner situation where people have varying levels of experience and varying types of experience, and yet the client doesn't really know how to differentiate who did what exactly. I'm not comfortable with any of that.
1: It's a tricky part of running a consultative business in any shape, in any industry, Do you try to clone yourself? Do you worry about scaling? Do you try to be a boutique shop that's you or, or maybe someone else who's very like you has a similar level of experience? Do you train people up and trust them to be as good? And how do you retain them? I mean, all of that is from the point of view of running a business, not easy.
0: No, that's a, it's a big challenge. I mean, that is my hope is that I would love to be replaced. You know, I'd love to be a, just a consultant or, you know, redundant. I mean, the thing is, I, I enjoy the work. So it's not like I'm trying to not do the work, but I agree.
1: Then you need to find a younger Pete, you know, or a number of them that were like you were when you came into PSB.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. true. But the main thing is, you know, someone who, people who are hungry. And the thing is, I really we've got a really strong team now. Mm-hmm. So What is your team? How big is it? And And what are the other four roles? So one person is managing the field work and doing the processing, Mike DiCarlo, and he is now based in Ohio. And then we have two analysts, uh, Gina Driscoll-Brantley, who came from the DCCC and the judge campaign before that. And she just joined us last cycle. And so she's a senior analyst. Jack Russo, I mentioned, came from my other firm. He's the most senior person who really just makes everything work. I just couldn't run things without his assistant. And then our our other junior analyst is my own son, who ended up joining us when someone left us last cycle when we were very busy, needed the help, and he happened to be in the job market. So that was the design. But yeah, but he enjoys it and it's working. so.
1: How would you characterize your firm in its methodology? I mean, polling has now become rather controversial. There's so much difficulty getting answers in the old ways to, to you know, polling questions. There's trouble getting good samples. How do you go about things?
0: Cautiously. Cautiously in the sense I don't embrace. I'm, I'm very careful about making sure that I'm comfortable with the methodologies that we adopt. So in other words, there are some issues with how to do ad testing in particular, where I'm not comfortable with a lot of the current methodologies that are being used because I don't think the sample sources are very representative of the voting electorate. And so some people will say, well, you just you do what you can because it is hard to get people in, say, a congressional race to do an ad test. And so the sample is not ideal, but it's OK. I really don't like that. I don't think eating sawdust is a replacement for even a small meal and I don't think it's the same thing, but I think some of these methodologies are like sawdust. They're not actually good for you.
1: Are you talking about like online samples and samples brought in by gamification or ads or whatever? Correct.
0: I don't want to name names or anything, but correct. That kind of thing. non-representative samples. I mean, the the problem is
1: all samples are non-representative now, right? Because
0: non-response problems and I mean, like, how do you. It's a really (laughs) good point. What I mean is obviously non-representative samples, ones that are not plausibly ever going to be anything like a common sense representative sample. But I mean, you're totally right. Right. But some samples, you know, by their design, there's no way that they're going to include anything close to the entire voting electorate which is fine if you're just trying to reach that particular subset of, say, young gamers, fine. But I don't know why I'd want to do an ad test with that subset.
1: Do you feel now running your own firm with all the headaches that that has, and, uh, you know, because there are, it is quite different to have to to think about the business side, not just the the strategy side. Do you feel happier? Do you feel like this is the right kind of setup for you?
0: Ah, so I realized uh, at some point that, the way my brain works is that I need to extricate myself to some extent from some of the details of things in order to think about the big picture. Cause here's the challenge. So like when I did modern, I was doing a lot on my own and every once in a while I will do things on my own. It's good to get reacquainted and kind of get your fingers in the soil. On the other hand, if you do it too much, then it's really hard to, see the strategic picture. Because what ends up happening is, if I want to know something, then I can just ask someone, hey, take a look at that, give me a table on that, run that. And it goes straight from, I had a thought about what might sense strategically to someone else will give me the numbers. If instead, I had to produce the chart myself, I'd start editing. And I'd start thinking, oh, that's not worth the cost benefit of me doing the chart, that kind of thing. That division of labor is really helpful.
1: I have been on so many parts of that spectrum from my first company where in the beginning, it was only me. And so I knew everything and did everything. And then over time, as that company got bigger, I became less and less relevant in a designed way. Most everything got delegated. Then I started a second company. I didn't want to be in the weeds. I wanted
0: to sit above that. I think it's hard to get it right. It is. You have. To, that's why I, it, it's good to get reacquainted every once in a while. You know, sometimes, and also, you know, I having minute places that were that were different than this. I don't want to abuse people's time. I want people to have a weekend if they can. I don't usually get a free weekend. Uh, you know, where there's nothing going on. So, but I'll I'll try and take on some of that those things myself. So I think weekends tend to be the time where. I'm most likely to actually do the thing myself. If,
1: if you're talking about like right now, what, what's the kind of mix of clients? what What's the work that you're up to in the 2024 cycle? So
0: in 2024, we have the Kane re-election. I started working for him in 2001 when he was really a long shot for lieutenant governor. And then like I mentioned, it continued through the governor's race and then the Senate races. So there's a re-election this year. We work for four House members. One of them will definitely have a competitive election. It's Marie Glusenkamp-Perez in Washington because she's in one of the top targeted seats because she took a Republican seat last time. So that'll be big priority. We've worked for House Majority PAC since they were founded, and I'm hopeful we'll do that again. That's always been excellent work. And Ended up doing about six races or so, something like that. And then last cycle, we started also working for United Democracy, which is the APAC affiliated, i.e., effort. And so we did several races for them last time. And I think that's important work. And- is that
1: like the Nina Turner?
0: Oh, that was that was another one. Okay, but it was a similar kind of situation. Yeah,
1: I mean, fairly controversial. Some of those
0: interventions. What, what do you think of that
1: United Democracy work?
0: Oh, I think it's important work. I mean, several years ago when there was the – I said I'm not an activist anymore, but I feel strongly about some issues. So several years ago when Congress voted on Iron Dome funding and you had a handful of members who voted against Iron Dome, that shook me because I can't think of any good reason to oppose supporting Israel's ability to protect its population from missile attacks. And I mean, I can think of explanations, but no explanation that sits well with me. And there was no group at that time that was determined to ensure that people who had cast a vote like that would lose their race. And so I think it's important work. The goal is to ensure that people who might cast a vote like that don't get to Congress in the first place. Because if they do, it's a lot harder to...
1: It feels like there's... A tearing of the Biden coalition around the Gaza war. There's just no way around that. Uh, what's your take as a
0: pollster on that very difficult situation? I haven't done extensive polling on it. I've done a little bit of polling on it. First of all, I made this comment in a totally different context at one point on LinkedIn related to some other war-related issue. As a pollster, I get really uncomfortable when I feel like I'm watching people, policymakers, makers, make decisions based on what they think will be popular. In other words, when I hear reports that the U.S. may or may not be advising the Israeli government to conduct the war in a certain way in order to sway public opinion toward their side, I'm deeply uncomfortable with that. Because it seems to me like there is no version of war that is popular. I mean, sure, it's great if you're in war and you're winning and that's terrific and you can hold parades, but the U.S. is not in this war directly. And war sucks. That's the thing. War is the nature of it. It it is killing people, right? So there is no popular version of it. And so I get very uncomfortable with that. Hopefully, the policymakers are just thinking about what is right for the people affected by the decisions and countries affected by the decisions or the territory uh, affected by the decisions rather than about what makes them popular.
1: One of the puzzling conundrums of this time is – we by many measures have a strong economy. Inflation has come down, there's low unemployment, there's a lot of growth, things that usually raise the approval of the incumbent president. For Biden, not so much.
0: What's going on there? I thank you for asking because I'm obsessed with this question. I do international work, like I've mentioned, and In the international work, I've seen, obviously, I've been doing domestic work for a long time too, but in addition, on the international side, I've seen this from a couple of different perspectives. One was helping a candidate to defeat an incumbent during a time when the incumbent was presiding over a growing economy, not robust, but growing economy, and we were able to do it because the incumbent was hapless when it came to formulating their economic argument and and showing voters that they had an economic strategy that instilled any confidence in them. That was one example. Another example was I worked for President Santos in Colombia, two terms. And after he took office, he had the second highest economic growth in the entire world. I believe it was over 5%, second only to China at the time. And yet the president had terrific job approvals on a lot of areas, but not when it came to the economy. So the question was why? And... My theory of the case, which I think ended up being true, was because, well, one, he didn't talk about it that much. That's not true in the case of President Biden. But two, voters didn't have a sense of what his approach was to the economy. And the thing about that is if voters don't know what your approach is, if the economy is good, they can't give you credit. I equate it to the weather. If the weather is good, no one's going to give me credit unless I can show you that I seeded the clouds or created the sun. I have to create a cause and effect for voters. This problem that President Biden has is not a uniquely President Biden problem. It's actually, I believe, a Democratic Party longstanding problem. So I did a poll back in June of 2010, national poll, and asked, do you believe then President Obama has an economic strategy or not? 53% said, yes, he has a strategy. That doesn't mean everybody liked the strategy or thought it was effective. That just means 53% believed he had one. So that from 2010 always concerned me about the Obama administration. They never fixed that problem. When they faced Romney, they sidestepped the problem altogether. Instead of making it about who has a better economic strategy, they made it about, well, who's on your side? Who's on the side of the middle class? Which I believe is a different question for a voter who can handle the economy is a different question than who's on the side of the middle class. And the party keeps on gravitating toward trying to answer this question, who's for the middle class and who isn't. And the problem is in the polls, we've won that argument and we lost the argument about the economy. And then the last kind of macro thing is, so if you look at the uh, Biden's job approval on the economy and Obama's, and you look at Trump's and you look at George W. Bush, the two Republican numbers are better than the two Democratic numbers. The averages. And they're within a few points of each other in both cases. The Trump and Bush numbers are close together. The Biden and Obama numbers are close together. So it's a party issue. And the reason why I believe it's a party issue is because if you ask a voter, what is the Republican approach on the economy? Since the 80s, they've been drilling home a clear answer and voters have heard it at this point. So they'll say some version of lower taxes, lower regulation, less government, something like that. It's pretty simple. Well, ask the same thing about Democrats. You won't get a clear answer. And the I think the tragic part of it is there are a lot of ways that Democrats could answer this question. There are a lot of ways that Democrats do answer this question in terms of public policy. And when it comes to message, we're not articulating it, not even close. What do you think we should be articulating? So I've pulled this numerous times, by the way, in a lot of gubernatorial contexts, in Senate context. I've looked at it in a lot of different ways. And so I've looked at a lot of different versions of it. That doesn't mean I have the definitive answer for what's going on right now in the national campaign. But first of all, kind of a predicate, Trump was a businessman who made his reputation as a successful, almost magical business guy on The Apprentice. And his reputation for being a magical business guy never got contested. So it's going to be uniquely difficult to sidestep the question with Donald Trump and try and change the subject to something else.
1: Not only that, but he
0: polls well on the economy of his term. Right. And the thing about it is if you ask voters, why why was his economy good? They'll say, oh, because he cut taxes. Well, look, I I believe that's not true in terms of economics, but we're talking politics. Two-thirds of our economy, according to the White House as of October, two-thirds of – although I think this is always true. Two-thirds of our economy is driven by consumer purchases. It's a consumer-driven economy, which means consumer confidence is king. As soon as Donald Trump won the office, there was a jump in consumer confidence. That jump in consumer confidence is not because he rolled out a five-point plan for how to do anything. It's because of trust in him. What's happening now is consumer confidence is creeping up, but the president's job approval ratings in the economy are not creeping up. So the problem is, if you ask voters, well, what is the president's strategy? First of all, I don't... Think there's a coherent answer coming necessarily from all cylinders in the Democratic Party operation. In other words, sometimes you might hear it's about tax fairness. He's bringing tax fairness. Sometimes it's about he's building neglected infrastructure. Sometimes it's about equity and restoring equity. Sometimes it's about standing for working people. You know, it's all over the place. So what your question was. So what would you say? The way to do it is. Often what happens is Democrats will say, well, we're going to say Republicans are tools of big corporate interest and wealthy people. That's a different subject. That is answering the question, how am I going to try and negatively go after Republicans? Your question, which I believe is the right question is, well, what's your pitch to voters that explains what you're doing and that might plausibly let voters say, oh, all the progress I'm seeing, whether it's a lot of progress or a little progress, I can attribute it to the president. So some version of, On the Republican side, they cut taxes and regulation because they believe, let the market sort it out. On our side, it should be, we believe that the secret sauce of the economy is our people. So we should be investing in our people, making sure they have training, making sure they have education, making sure there are no barriers to their success. And we do say
1: that, but it is diffused within so many other messages. It's a matter of some frustration to me, and I suspect most followers of politics, that we haven't arrived yet at a coherent strategy for winning an election that the stakes are so high on, on things like economy. Biden's going to go to Valley Forge. He's going to talk about the threat to democracy, which is true and crucial, and about something related to equity, which is fine. But I feel like we're missing a clear strategy that everybody can get on board with.
0: That 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 there's a leader pushing with a trumpet. I agree. I mean, at, first of all, within the party, followers need to follow at some point. But I also I'm not sure that the marching orders are clear. But I'm also not confident, like you're saying, that people will follow the marching orders even if they had clear marching orders, and that's a really big problem. Like yeah. the Republicans decided when Al Gore ran for president, they decided he has seventy percent of the American public believing he is honest, and we're going to turn that around. And so they chipped away at him for months. So we should be looking at this economic issue, which is people lack confidence in the party, I believe, not just the president, but the party, because they don't really understand what our approach is. We should be focused on it. And the thing is, world events will always intervene and knock us off message. So you have to do it relentlessly. And we don't. And by the way, equity is not a term you're ever going to hear come out of a voter's mouth, I don't think. Activists will use it. I've never heard a voter bring up equity. They might have some other version of it, but yeah, I get what you're saying there. I mean, I know that people within the party will use it all the time, but this is it's just a matter of listening to voters. There are a lot of things where if you're doing research, this is kind of a dumb question. That's probably an unpopular thing, which is, well, if people are going to use the word equity, maybe they should ask voters about the word equity. But- Like
1: one of the things that I admired about Obama when he was running in 08 in the primary and in the general was when an argument came out of an opposing campaign, he took it on. When he got into some scandal, you know, his preacher or something, he made a big speech. He was an effective communicator, but he wasn't just that. He actually contested the argument being made in the moment in an effective way. Our problem now seems like it's twofold. One, we don't necessarily do that. And two, Biden is not as strong a communicator. It's not impossible that you could be in the room talking about this or helping affect the leadership here. What do you say? We
0: kind of are where we are. How do we win this thing? So first of all, I mentioned I went to grad school and it ended up being really valuable to me. I went there in order to study. It was uh, the Annenberg School, which is part of UPenn. I studied with the then Dean Kathleen Hall Jamison who focuses on political communications. And it was really valuable for me to do that and then keep up with the literature afterwards. And I learned a few things during that process that I apply all the time. And one of them is, of course, a really simple one, which people will say intuitively, but it's also backed up by research, which is that Emotions drive our decision-making before rational decisions. So what you're describing, I believe, is, first of all, if people are afraid because they're not sure what direction the leadership is taking us, or because they see scenes at the border that make them nervous, or they see scenes of war that make them nervous, or they hear constant refrains from the Republican side that the economy is in the tank and collapsing, keeps people in a state of anxiety and fear, which... I think makes it really difficult to ever get voters to the part of the conversation where you might be talking in a subtle way about policy differences. So it's emotional. So what's emotional? Part of emotional is tone of voice, physical presence, setting. So I think that for the president, it's going to be really hard to turn things around based on a written speech. Because I think in a time when people are anxious and uncertain, people need to hear that he can... stand on his own two feet, and deliver on his own without a script, which I have full confidence he can do. And if they need to do it in a short form, then do it in a short form. The, the second thing is like your point is there's a, politics is a contrast, right? People are weighing, well, what's the risk associated with one choice or the other choice? And what's the benefit of one choice or the other choice? So when you think of it in those terms, first of all, I think the risk of democracy going away, I think people become desensitized to it over time. And both sides are yelling it. And both do. In fact, polling will show you Republicans are just as concerned as Democrats are. So I agree. I don't think we're we're actually making a lot of ground up unless we had, first of all, democracy is an abstraction. Like I said, I've worked in places where we had to do one campaign under uh, martial law, where government was deposed by multiple coups. And even in that situation, people still focus on the economic issues. It's the hierarchy of needs it seems like it would be malpractice to not
1: contest the central argument about who's better at running the country on pocketbook issues.
0: Correct. For instance, like on the thing, so again, you know, on the, on the, on the economic message. So let's say if the centerpiece was some version of we believe in the American people and we're going to support the American people, they're just going to let the market sort it out. Part of the way we're going to help the American people is by restoring stability which includes stability of supply chains and things like that, and then do the contrast so people can make the choice, which means weighing in the way you're talking about. It It doesn't mean trying to be above politics. It means showing people, hey, you couldn't even buy toilet paper under the previous guy. And by the way, we are hemorrhaging jobs under the previous guy. And now the president is creating jobs. You have to engage that argument. And you have to do it all the time. And what's going to happen at first is a lot of people, even on our own side, are going to say, well, that's not true. You're overpromising. I just had a funny experience the other day where someone wrote an excellent article on LinkedIn saying, I know what the polling says about the economy, but in fact, people are better off in a lot of ways than they were prior to President Biden. And so I weighed in and said, thanks. This is terrific. Great information. And then someone started to badger me saying oh, so it's just a message problem? And I was saying, well, yes, it is. Anyway, it turns out it was someone from the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> the Republicans are, they're on it. Like they're aware that they they engage in the, in the, you know, so I don't know if this was by design or not, but it was a funny experience. Finally, the author actually shut off the comments because it became, I'm sure, tedious. But we should be fighting this every day. I agree. But Biden has experienced
1: strategists. He's had long relationships with pollsters. He knows politics really well. This is multiple presidencies for Democrats, it's not just him, where we seem to want to be above the political battlefield. We seem to want to, you know, like govern in in a very honorable way, doing the right things, but not fight for the story and, and the interpretation of the story that's going to enable us to keep doing those sort of things.
0: I, I think you're right. I mean, back, I think back under the Clinton presidency, they found that the president was more effective as president than he was as a campaigner, because as a campaigner, people might say, he's all about politics, whereas president, he was seen as extremely effective. But that was then. This is now. And so even President Obama, I'm not going to be able to quote him exactly, but even President Obama said a couple of years into his presidency that I thought that good policy would result in good political outcomes. And it turns out that wasn't exactly true, that you have to engage in the politics too. And so I think that's exactly correct. It's always about politics. And so if people aren't buying the governance argument, then you have to give them the contrast. For instance, when we talk about these job numbers, job numbers are, first of all, one easy way for voters to get their head around whether the economy is doing well or not. And secondly, that the numbers are much better than they were under the pres- under, uh, President Trump. So why not challenge him on that? Yeah, agreed. I mean, one of the, one of the
1: clear contrasts between Trump and Biden is that Trump is really a political animal on the campaign scene. He is always campaigning. He doesn't do it, honestly. He lies about every goddamn thing, but he is looking at, at the political contest and constantly engaging in it.
0: Absolutely. And the thing is by doing it, he is sending a message of alpha. He's projecting alpha. And people always say, well, his age is the same as President Biden's age. But they have a completely different style. I would never say be like Trump, of course. But you can engage by saying we're undoing the things that were done under Trump and make it a little bit easier for voters to figure out what the difference is. For instance, we know that Trump is a chaos agent. To the extent you have a president as chaos agent, it's easier for people to understand how that can affect the economy's ability to be successful.
1: When in functional democracies around the world, the there's been a threat of a right-wing populist candidate, often there has been a coalitional approach across multi-party systems to put aside differences and and fight, you know, Le Pen in France or something like that, right? It feels like we're in that situation. Do you think we have a mechanism for getting our ducks in a row
0: to take that on? I don't know. I mean, Justice Alito helped provide us a a little bit of focus for a while, but in general, not necessarily. I guess the good news is the federal elections have become much more parliamentary over the last 15 years or so. And in the sense that there's a very small gap between how people are voting in say a Senate race and how they're voting in the presidential. So you're actually fighting on a race by race basis to create a difference between the national message, right? So to that extent, you don't all have to have your ducks in a row because each Senate candidate, they need to figure out what's their unique story that they're telling to voters about themselves and their state that's different than the national message.
1: One of the things that's always driven me crazy and maybe you've been part of this because it seems like almost every pollster or media strategist or whatever does this, but you have a candidate who has to try to create their own space from the national election. So they run against their own government in DC, (laughs) right? Right. We don't collectively support the president's message because we're running afraid and we need two more points than him in Virginia or in
0: Colorado or wherever. No, you're making a really good point. There's a big difference between being seen as an individual who has an individual personal story and set of priorities and attacking your own party. So to your question, ideally, we can get our ducks in a row nationally to the extent that we can stop bemoaning the economy. It's completely self-defeating. If I'm a voter Why should I vote for the Democratic Party when I keep on hearing Democrats tell me that the economy stinks? It's absurd. And so at minimum, stop it. I'm not saying hold a parade for the economy, although in some places, maybe you want to. Like I work for Governor Walls, They have an amazing economy. And during his reelection, he ran advertising talking about the amazing economy. And we got a bump in his standing on handling the economy. Because the thing is, if you do research and you ask people about whether life stinks, they'll say, yeah, life stinks. I've seen it over and over and over again. I saw it in Colorado when Governor Hickenlooper was governor, and the statewide unemployment rate was just about 4%, is that there was some research circulating where they were asking people about the economy, and they're saying, we don't feel it. It doesn't feel good. It was a superheated economy. Because I was on the IE side trying to figure out how to support Governor Hickenlooper. And so we ended up doing an economic contrast against his opponent, knowing really that he was most likely to do a positive economic message because that was his wheelhouse politically. And so in that case, the one set of research said, well, don't talk positively about the economy. Well, he did and it helped him. I've seen it actually in more than one place. So hopefully we can at least stop doing damage. It does feel like we do that because we're afraid it'll make us look like we're not in touch with the people who are struggling. Correct. And instead, what we're doing is we're, first of all, we shouldn't treat people like they're struggling. That is typical. That is language that often comes out of the party. But if you actually ask voters about it, they really don't like being called strugglers. I remember once sitting in focus groups actually for the Gore campaign in New Jersey, and we were talking about people versus the powerful. And I remember when that came up as a message, people were getting mad at the moderator saying, what are you talking about? I'm not powerless. Who are you talking about? That's not me maybe that's children, maybe that's seniors, that's not me. They were really mad. I think it violates people's self image to be called strugglers. So it is one thing to say, the economy is always a work in progress, but we've come a long way from Trump. I don't see a voter objecting to that. And no one is saying you have to embrace the economy as an amazing thing. You just have to be able to show progress and a differentiation in the approach between what you would do and what Trump would do. So for instance, the Biden administration, I think has done some really great work in in establishing the tools for restoring American manufacturing, particularly in key areas that are of strategic value. What you were just describing in Europe, I think is largely the rise of nationalism across Europe. And I believe the reason why nationalism is on the rise is because you have globalization, plus you have COVID, Plus, you have immigration. So if you read The Economist, which I do, they'll explain that actually immigration patterns are no more significant now than they were decades ago. Fine. But there's a confluence of events right now. If you looked at immigration patterns 60 years ago, that was before you had an EU where you didn't have barriers to the migration and also before the visible signs of it. If if it happens now, everybody sees it. It's a different phenomena than if something happens and you're not seeing it because you're just reading a newspaper, that kind of thing. So I think what happens is people get really concerned about what does my future look like and also what is my cultural identity and can I preserve it? If you just look at any issue of just The Economist, for example, because they kind of cover the world, you'll see article after article that is about nationalism being fought out country by country. Like you mentioned France. In France, they're having fights about the food they eat and whether or not it's okay to still eat steak or not. They have fights about language. You have fights about culture happening all over. Yeah. So I actually think that one of the really important things that could happen at the national level here is, and this is a keyed off of the manufacturing thing because I think it's related to it, is where is our message that is a positive version of nationalism? Because if you give people a positive version of nationalism, it provides some reassurance that things are going to be okay. And it provides some reassurance that you're not going to lose what you have, whether it's your lifestyle or your cultural identity, your ability to be you and your community. And loss, the sense of potentially losing things, is how people vote. The Republicans are really good at saying, we're not going to be the same culture, you are not going to be the same people, you're not going to have the same level of safety, the same jobs, or like Donald Trump says, and they'll kill you, Uh, because he really gets creating a sense of risk. So I also think that at the national level, positive version of nationalism that says the American workers are terrific, hardworking, creative people. We have a profit motive in this country that works. We're the envy of the world. People come here from all over the place to start their new business. And we want to support that. We want to make sure we have a stable financial market. We want to make sure you can get your product to market. We want to make sure you have training. We want to make sure you have education. And But I don't know if the party will ever embrace it because a lot of people in the party are convinced that business is a dirty word. And I just wish they would talk to voters because that's how voters say. I agree. I
1: think it's a very, very dangerous place to be, to be anti-capitalist in a capitalist country.
0: Correct. It's part of our identity. You know, like um, Sherrod Brown talks about dignity of work. I think that's a variation on the theme, whatever, that's his, his language. But I think that... If you talk to voters about it, you will always get some version of the idea back that this is a place where we should make sure that if you work hard, you are rewarded. Agreed. Clinton hit that very well, I think, back in his day.
1: It just recalls to me this earlier in this conversation when you were talking about ability when you were abroad to see the forest, not the trees. And I feel like we may be stuck with a lot of consultants that are seeing the trees And we need somebody – I don't know if we have to bring them from somewhere abroad, but like we need somebody to look at this and distill it down to the basics and not get hung up on
0: the small parts of the argument. Well, that is true because if you look at our economic argument, it's usually a laundry list of ideas that are designed to appeal to subsections of the electorate. And the only reason why you can come up with that list is if you are deeply embedded in the grassroots of the party and you're trying to make sure that you're responsive to them. But I think that's all subtext. We're completely missing the headline of the whole thing. What is the broad perspective? And there's not one
1: headline. If someone's looking from abroad. Most of them will see Trump as a threat the way Erdogan has been a threat to turkey or similar things in hungary around the world pick a couple things and hammer them in
0: the case of the nationalist argument they have the they have the ability to do it the resurgence of american manufacturing is a terrific story that just shows americans can do it if we're given a level playing field if we take away unfair trade barriers and also The Republican whole theory of the case is let the market sort it out, and I think it's really easy for the Biden administration to say, we've tried that before, and when you don't pick winners and losers, the American people are the losers, and that's what happened under Trump, and that is what's going to happen again is you'll lose under him and you will win under me, and we are winning under this administration, so give us more time in order to help us win some more.
1: Is there a campaign that comes to mind somewhere here or abroad where – where someone took on a Trump-like figure and won it from the position that Biden's in now.
0: There aren't that many analogous people. I mean, there's the opposite. It's Brazil. Brazil is one. Right. Yeah. And then the thing is I wasn't involved in the Brazil campaign. But I also think that the president kind of wore out as welcome, as Trump did. It turns out that when a million people, you know, die under your watch, that you know, I always say there aren't that many truisms in American politics, but one of them is that people won't necessarily remember what happened 15 minutes ago. And the mass casualties that happened under Donald Trump are one of those things. And
1: and they caused him to lose the Electoral College by like 60,000 votes. Right. I mean, <laughs> I'm
0: mean, trying to think, kind of go through who else would be actually in that sort of camp. Poland actually turned around. The thing is what happens is, though, and this is the danger of the second administration. This isn't a political argument for voters necessarily, but it's just a reality, which is, so if you, you know, Orban, or if you look at Poland, they were systematically going after the media. The thing is they had more, I believe, state operated media. So it was more of a dramatic change to go after, but then they were censoring. They were going after the universities. In the case of Brazil, the courts actually stepped up and did their work fast, really to their credit. So Brazil is probably the best single example, but the courts intervened in that case. Netanyahu gets isn't
1: doesn't serve, like Trump perhaps, doesn't serve always consecutively, but then he comes back again, right? Like Trump is. I'm not a uh, comparative politics student. I hope we are really thinking through this crucial campaign from forest point of view.
0: Well, there's also, there are a lot of cautionary tales. So he'll get hungry. I was not involved in Hungary, but just lo- looking at it from a, a distance, it seemed to me that the message was also focus largely on democracy. And again, I've just never seen voters be responsive to it. A great proportion of people don't understand that system and another
1: bunch of them don't even necessarily support it theoretically because they're not grounded in it. That, you know, it's, it's a mess.
0: Right, what's the actual thing that you will lose? Yeah, that's what needs to be pointed to. And it's power, but they need to understand that. I would say two things. One is make it tangible because otherwise it's irrelevant. I always think of the hierarchy of needs and democracy for me is up on the top of it where what I always consider the yoga pants part of the-, the self-actualization. It is the self-actualization piece, right. And that's the thing, democracy is an intangible intellectual concept, but what does it actually mean in my life What does it mean for me and my ability to have a family and a good life and things like that? That means it's actually one step removed from talking about the thing that I'm obsessed with, which is why are we not winning the economic argument? Why are we not even trying? We keep on saying over and over again, if only people knew our accomplishments and we'd get rewarded for it. Not true, because if you just tell people a laundry list of Biden administration accomplishments, their takeaway is going to be, that sounds expensive and I don't see the theme. That's the big problem. So I I always think of politics as pointillism because, you know, people will create patterns where there are none. So if you give people a bunch of data points, they will, you know, it's culturistic. So they'll create a picture, which is why I believe constellations are a thing. People just look at the stars and you naturally, we've created constellations. That's the way our brains operate. We try and create patterns. So if you just tell people about all the elements of the Biden administration successes, what's the picture? The picture is for people is, wow, that's expensive. So I think they need to take a step back, paint a different picture with fewer dots that lead people to a different conclusion, which is that you can trust President Biden to continue rather than trust Donald Trump when it comes to the economy. And then you can argue about democracy. Because the other problem about democracy argument is it's another version, I think, of the argument that Donald Trump is a horrible person, which I personally agree with. But that was the 2016 campaign. That was not successful.
1: I'm glad to have the chance to hear this from you. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to?
0: Oh, you asked really good questions. There's one other thing. Maybe it's relevant, maybe it's not, but I just would be remiss if I don't mention it. On this whole economic discussion, I always urge people to read Teddy Roosevelt's State of the Union when he first took office 100 years ago, because he talked about how we need to celebrate the success of our businesses And we need to have a profit motive so that they continue to be successful. We also need to rein them in when they get engaged in excesses, as we need to do with our friends in the unions. And that was the new nationalism. Yeah. And that's, it it was, I mean, just a terrific balance, 100-year-old, not revolutionary. And I think that's a really good model. Not verbatim, but that's a really good model for taking the kind of approach that I think is still very similar to the way American voters would think about the way the economy works. Pete, great to have you on. Anything else you want to say? No, I think I'm good. Thanks.
1: That was Pete Brodnitz. He is at expeditionstrategies.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.